This is Dollars to Donuts with Steve Portugal. Hi, and here we go with another new episode of Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where we talk with the people who lead user research in their organization. First, I have to give it up for these great sponsors. Envision, the world's leading product design and prototyping platform. Sign up free at envisionapp.com. Airbnb's experience research team, making authentic local experiences possible anywhere in the world. And the Pinterest research team, who work with designers, engineers, and everyone in between to build the world's most inspiring catalog of ideas. If you need help learning how to make sense of your user research data, get in touch with me at Portable.com. And you can buy my book, Interviewing Users, from Amazon and Rosenfeld Media. And you can find out more at Rosenfeld Media about my upcoming book, A User Research War Stories. Kavita Apachu is the Senior Manager of UX Research at Kelly Blue Book. I've had the pleasure of knowing her for many years now, and we've had many conversations about how companies should use design and research, and how and why some companies don't use design and research the way they should. You're in for a real treat today as I talk with her on Dollars to Donuts. Well, thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So what might be a nice way to start with with you is to um, maybe have you do kind of a, a narrative or, a, you know, walk us through some of the major steps in your professional career. Oh, boy. So um, I've had a fairly long and uh, eventful uh, professional career. I started as a designer back in the days when um, all a designer did was visual design. And then I, you know, evolved to being an interaction designer. And and I went back to school for that and then um, started designing. And then when I started um, designing, I very quickly realized that um, I didn't have the right inputs or insights to help me create compelling experiences. And that's when I went back to school yet again to really learn about how um, the human mind works and, uh, you know, how we could uh, do a better job of creating experiences that uh, align with people's behaviors and needs. And um, what was the program you went back to at that point? That was, uh, I went to, uh, went back to uh, get my master's in, um, you know, cognitive systems engineering and visual communication at uh, the Ohio State University. We'll keep going through time, but I want to just, you know, check with this. It seems like at that point where you had that realization that you were lacking this input, Mm -hmm. you know, around behavior, you know, I I mean, if we, if we, if you say that now in 2016, uh, it's, it's, very different, I think, than in in the time when you had that realization in terms of what are standard design practices, you know, how users are or information from users is involved. I don't know. I'm I'm sort of I'm I'm leading you a little bit, but, you know, tell me where you were at at that point. Right. Absolutely. This was back in the days where I think Don Norman was just sort of emerging as one of the advocates of designing for human behavior and consumer needs. And I and, you know, I don't know if you remember, there is a there is an author called Victor Papanek. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, he, he wrote a book uh, on designing for the real world. And I remember that had a deep impact on me because uh, 
the traditional in the, back in those days, the traditional design uh, school curriculum was really. I am the designer. I know what you need and I'm going to design it and you're going to learn to use it. So that was a very different way of talking about it. Exactly. It was a very different way of talking. It was a different paradigm. And um, that, uh, you know, that was and that's what designers were taught and that's what they did. And, And the book really had a deep impact on me in terms of, you know, just empathy, consumer, you know, people's needs and how uh, you want to think of those first before you even start thinking of what you want to design. I love that. I mean, I just, I love that we can reflect back, those of us that were around, we can reflect back on times when this, it wasn't, uh, you know, user research wasn't on CNN or wasn't just so ubiquitous and that um, many of us found our ways to it in, in, in interesting, interesting paths. So I, I, I took you away from your story a little bit. So you were talking about going into this program at Ohio State. Mm-hmm. Um, can we, can we pick up from there? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, that was, I think, a very fulfilling experience for me where I was really able to, um, apply myself and learn about, you know, uh, what, um, how the human mind works. And uh, it was completely fascinating about short-term memory, long-term memory, and the whole, you know, all the, you know, everything that cognitive psychology has to teach. And uh, that was, that really laid the foundation for uh, my approach to creating experiences and how we involve users in every step of the process about collaborating with everyone, all your stakeholders and collaborating with your users. And it's not just about people's functional needs, but it's also about their emotional needs and how um, you can create these great experiences that not just meet their needs, but delight them. It, it seems like there's an element there and uh, that, um, you know, the cognitive science gave you a peek into the, I mean, my term anyway, is like the soft skills around research, uh, working with stakeholders is, is an empathy activity, as, you, as I think is what you're saying. Am I, am I, do I have you properly? Yes, yes, you do. And I think uh, I was all, so when I was at uh, Ohio State University, there's a couple of things that happened. One was I got to work very, very closely with Dr. Liz Sanders, who has been who's been my coach and mentor to this day, someone I really admire. And I think she was uh, almost she were, you can call her a trailblazer. I know, you know, in terms of just using both participatory design techniques to involve users in the design process and also using emotion as a way to both understanding consumer needs, user needs and uh, also creating experiences that help meet those emotional needs. And I know, um, especially because, you know, the lit- cognitive psychology literature, there's two schools of thought where it's all, it's all about cognition and emotion does not play a role. And she was, even though she is a cognitive psychologist by training, she was very, you know, she was one of the first people that said, no, emotion does play a role and they need, they work in tandem and you cannot ignore one and design only for cognition because you're not going to be creating great experiences or a successful product. 
and I may be banging this drum, you know, too much in this conversation, but I mean, you said trailblazer. I think that's an important uh, characterization because that was not how design was approached then, right? The 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 notion that this was, uh, you know, the world of human factors and man-machine interfaces kind of was the legacy that I think the field had inherited and that you didn't you didn't think about this person with empathy or someone that was an emotional emotional user and that that was that was so important. So that sounds like this was a, you know, some some changes in the default practice were starting to to come out of the work that you were doing and that, that Liz was doing. Yes, absolutely. And I think to your point in those, and we're going so far back, and I, I and then I think I'll get back to why I'm even sort of revisiting those days and my journey, not just because you asked me a question, but I think given where I'm working today has yeah. some bearing on that. That said, I think to your point in those days, there were, you know, two kind of, uh, areas or avenues for design. Uh, it, one was the human factors, very product-driven approach, and then the other was agencies and advertising, right? Mm. And uh, they were very different approaches, and they had very different goals, but those were the two. And I think where we are today is a good mix of both, right? Yeah. And, and I think... Uh, because those boundaries, you know, don't exist anymore. And uh, given that the virtual world and the real world are so closely intertwined, what we, you know, cons- we, we don't pay for everything we consume. So there's just, uh, everything's changed. And so those worlds are really all one now. That's right? a nice observation. Yeah. So, so you let you know at your request. Let's get back to sort of the the stages of your own your own journey. Uh, what did you know? What where did you head to after that experience? Right. And I think the second thing that also uh, you know was a great experience for me was those days Apple used to uh, find you know. Um, had uh, something called Apple Design Projects, and uh, they ident- they sort of identified about eight or ten schools from all over the world, and they would give them design projects, and they would work for work with you for six months on a project. And the culmination of that was you went to Cupertino and you worked with everyone there, and you made a presentation to the execs. And and I think that was sort of that really put everything I was learning at Ohio State into practice for me. And it was really great to be able to work. And during the six-month period, they actually assigned a designer from Apple that was your coach and mentor and worked very closely with you. What was the project about? The project was uh, how do you um, use the virtual world to um, get people to come closer in the real world? Hmm. That was the project. Yeah. yeah, that was a project for that you know, for the year that uh, I participated, and it was it was a competition. So what ha- it was interesting because you would have a few teams from e- in each school, and you competed, and then one team, the team that won that competition, got to go to Cupertino and then competed with the other teams from different colleges hmm. and schools. So that was a that was a fun experience. I really yeah. enjoyed kind of. Um, 
working with everybody and getting everyone's perspective. We have people people from the Netherlands, we had people from India, we had people from Japan and you know, all over the world actually coming with their projects and sharing and learning from each other. So it was it was a very, very uh, rich uh, cultural experience that sort of um, defined uh, the way I really think and work with people. Wow, that's fabulous. Yes. It's been a long time, but I still remember it. So, mm. so did that lead you to back to the working world? Yes, that did lead me back to the working world. And I actually started in um, telecom, which was <laughs> in sharp contrast to this dynamic world at Apple. Um, and uh, I was the first UX professional hired by Quest. In um, and they, they were, you know, an up and coming telecom company at that point. Uh, and uh, it so I was working in this telecom hardcore engineering organization. Uh, but what I loved about uh, that place, and I think now that uh, I've worked in a few places, I realized what I really enjoy is the challenge of going in and setting things up where the organization has a thirst for evolving their design expertise and design, you know, majority to building their design capabilities. And I, I really enjoy going in and working with uh, the, the people and the organization and helping make them make that happen. And, and how did it play out for Quest? I think it played out well, uh, at least, uh, you know, they, they had developers who were actually coding, you know, not just coding, they were designing the experience, which was called the user interface in those days. And uh, while it was, it worked for, uh, you know, it worked for, well, it wasn't ideal, but they were able to uh, make do for their customer service applications and internal applications when they started getting into the consumer space, which is what they were getting into at that point, they felt they were at a big disadvantage. So they needed this expertise to help create products and experiences that uh, consumers would be able to use that were usable and useful. Otherwise, they they were losing consumers. And I think so. that's what drove them to actually start thinking of having this capability in-house. And how much was, you know, in, in that particular organization and the work that you were leading there, how much was research part of uh, the design practice? Research? So it was interesting. I think, uh, you know, in traditionally uh, technical organizations, they do what's called user acceptance testing. And, you know, it's a very technical term. It's mm-hmm. a very engineering focused term. And uh, they, they, I realized they were using, they were doing it. There was nothing formal, but they were informally doing that and using that not just to test the performance of their applications, but also to some extent get feedback on uh, the usability and usefulness of their applications. But uh, that was it. I don't, there was not, you know, there was not a lot of formal research. And uh, in all honesty, at that point, I really was not able to do a lot more either. I mean, I had to, I, you know, I had to pick my, I had to prioritize and I really prioritize with, okay, let's at least start with getting them to understand and learn about how, you know, what it takes to design a good experience. And uh, it is a very unique sort of skill set, and it requires a certain approach. And um, 
the research at that point was very informal. That's an interesting point you make too, that the, you know, the priority is to kind of get a design process happening. Do you think we need to get that set set up first before you can start to uh, kind of expand and, and flesh out the formality of research? You know, today, if you ask me that, I would say probably not. Mm. But I think in those days, yeah. I because design was not, design was at that point, for the most part, there were, you know, on that maturity continuum, either it was a tactical player or did not exist at all. Right. Yeah. And so, so that's, so, so you sort of prioritized and said, okay, you know what, I'm going to start, um, it's baby steps. So I'm going to start with what, you know, the most important, what they're more likely to accept and then work my way into incorporating research. But if you were to ask me today, because thanks to design thinking and just the awareness and the impact of design, um, where it, if in a lot of work, I, I can't say it's in all organizations, but in a lot of organizations, it's moved from being a tactical player to a strategic partner. I think uh, you would go in today and really say we need both, right? They work in tandem. Yeah, that's a good explanation of the of the evolution since then. Absolutely. So Quest, what, what, um, how did you know when to move on from Quest? I, I think at some point uh, I just was looking for other challenges. And uh, that's when I decided to move to something that to work on something that was just more consumer facing and moved faster, right? A telecom industry doesn't move at the pace that, uh, say, a media in, you know, company does or, you know, a financial company. Mm -hmm. They're even slower. You know, I mean, financial software is not known for its speed or agility, but telecom moves very slow. Mm -hmm. And so that, so it was more, I I think I was ready for a new challenge. Mm -hmm. And that's when I sort of uh, moved to work for AOL back in the days when they were doing well. (laughs) (laughs) And what was the role you had there? That's, that, that, when I, st- I think that was where I switched from being a designer to a researcher. I started as a designer there and uh, we would outsource research. And what happened was, I think one day the GM at, um, and I was working in Columbus, Ohio, which uh, had, you know, which where CompuServe was based, which was an AOL acquisition. And uh, the GM in Columbus, I think, saw he got the expenditure spreadsheet if i'm recall and he saw the line item for the expenditure on research because we were outsourcing it and he he realized oh maybe we should bring it in house and that's when he asked me if i would be interested in heading that and i oh and it's been a long time, but I think at that point I was like, absolutely, this sounds like a great opportunity. Uh, I really enjoy, I, I like designing, but I really enjoy providing insights and gathering insights because to your point, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's data and there's insights. And I was, you know, I would get data, but I would not, I wouldn't get good insights from the research that was coming my way all the time. So that was why I sort of took on that challenge, if you will. And um, I think since then, I've, you know, I stuck with research. I enjoy doing it. I love working with people. Um, 
as a designer, you work, you do interact with people, but as a researcher, that's, it's imperative. And I absolutely love that. It's such a, it's such a fulfilling experience. You learn from, you learn so much about everyone and yourself mm -hmm. every day. And yourself is, yeah, but I, yes, I, I'm not saying anything except just agreeing emphatically. Both those pieces are true. And then you never stop learning about yourself uh, you, from your research. Yes, absolutely. I think, yes, it's, it's very humbling. Yeah, I. Um, I mean, one of the things I enjoy about research is um, is uh, learning about how judgmental I am. You know, I think I'm a good advocate for you know all the good principles of research and deferring judgment and so on. And it's interesting to find myself in the, in those situations where uh, I can just feel all this judgment come up. And I don't know what you think. I think maybe as researchers, we kind of learn just to sit with and hold on to that judgment as opposed to you know taking it on ourselves fully. And I guess for me. Uh, it can be fun to like even just in the same conversation with someone that I'm interviewing kind of flip flop or maybe, you know, sway back and forth between um, sort of accepting and being open minded and curious and then, you know, sort of flaring up a, a judgment and then, then setting it aside and then going back to being open and you know, just seeing what my own limitations are for all my, all the values I might proclaim, you know, I'm, I'm pretty flawed as a person as we all are. And, um, I don't know. Do you, is that yeah. something that, that do you, do you, am I making any sense at all with this? Absolutely. I completely agree. I think I go through that a lot, but in, in it, both in my professional and personal life, right. And especially in your personal life, because you, you know, uh, you are much more emotionally vested in your personal life. It's very easy to um, jump, you know, into uh, drawing conclusions and uh, being judgmental. And I had to your point, um, I have to tell myself, hey, I am able to do a reasonably okay job as a researcher. Why can't I also do the same in my personal life? Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Oh, I do know what you mean. And um, I feel like, you know, anything that I discover as a principle or write about that, that, you know, makes for good research is is clearly applicable to everyday life. But I also think it can be um, it can be a big burden for those of us that have reflected on that and have tried to, you know, develop those skills. It's 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 hard enough to be good as a researcher and just sort of moderately good as a person just i just i always want to be cautious of raising the bar for myself too high like oh i should always be listening to people and i shouldn't be judging them and i should be you know patient and open-minded it's like it's, it's that's all that's that's hard to do in research and sort of coming out of that mode sometimes mm -hmm. i want to just set that aside and just uh you know just be a jerk i guess or or just a regular person i guess it's maybe a better way to put it yeah, but you know, believe me, my 16 year old reminds me every day about how I jump to conclusions and how mm. judgmental I am. <laughs> so I don't even need to do that myself. He's yeah. there to, to do it for me. I, I want to go back to one thing you said about um, you sort of described this point at which you went from being a designer to a researcher. And mm -hmm. I mean, is was that an identity switch for you? Obviously, it's a title change, but. Mm -hmm. Do either of those labels, were those the right? You know, sometimes we sort of transcend our labels. And, uh, right. you know, I know I, I know you as a researcher, so to hear that you were a designer, like, I think you've told me that, but I forgot until this conversation. So I'm trying to, like, put you in a box as we're talking, like, well, is she a researcher or a designer? And yeah. you kind of describe this transitional moment. And I don't know. You know, it just seemed like, so that's a good question. At that time, I just was so excited. I didn't even 
think about it, right? Um, and I just took it on because it was so much fun. I just kind of, set, like I said, I like to go in, set things up, make things happen. And this was the starting of something new uh, that I enjoyed doing. And I didn't think much of it because I had a passion for it. But to your point, I didn't realize that it would in my mind, it wasn't because I think, you know, a change of identity, because I've always thought that two are very closely related. And at least the way I work, the way I've been trained, I kind of have thought myself of myself as, as both because yeah. of my formal training and experience. But then to your point, um, yes, I was asked to pick an identity even though I didn't want to. Mm. And I think I sort of struggle with that even now. Do you want to talk about what, what, how that, how you experience that now? Right. You know, I, I think it's more like, you know, I, oh, you are a researcher. Yes, I am. And I can also help with providing input towards design. Right. Yeah. I think so we, as a, as a society, we like to simplify things and to your point, compartmentalize people. And uh, the way I think about it is design is a mindset. You can apply it towards calling insights or you can apply it towards creating um, or defining experiences. And I feel like I can do both, but um you know, I don't know if it is just me that thinks that way or and so maybe I'm way off from everybody or maybe it's just uh, the way, you know, things work right now. That's the way it is. And at some time in the future, those boundaries will, you know, we merge and go away. You know, people are going to be listening to this and like they're just going to be nodding vigorously right now and going, no, it's not just you. That's I think I think you expressing that that way, I think, is going to be a, a, a nice moment for people that are listening. Can we talk about uh, your your work at Intuit, which is where I first met you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think at some point, you know, I was looking for other challenges and uh, Intuit came along. When I, and I think Intuit was a great experience for me in terms of what, watching and growing with an organization in terms on that design maturity continuum, right? Uh, when I started at Intuit, um, they believed in design and they felt design were, played a role in defining experiences, but they were not where they are today, which is a design-driven company. And um, it was... It's now that I'm not at Intuit anymore. I look back and I go, "Wow, that was that was a great experience." You know, living through that, going through that journey and living it. Watch, you know, working through uh, where you know, starting with, "Hey, here's the product. Go design it." And you know, go design. Do re they were always insight driven and very consumer focused. So that that was always. Uh, good and that was what helped them move so fast so quickly that said they were it was not design was design happened after the product strategy was defined but today you know design plays a role and when i say design i mean design and research i'm again using the term design to cover all aspects of the user experience you know 
design plays a role and in providing input towards their product strategy. How cool is that? How many organizations do that? And did you, I mean, what, what things did you see happen to, um, to help drive that progression and the maturity? I think there's a few things. So one is um, the leadership believed in it and was committed to it, right? So that was one. And they enabled the right people to go ahead and create an environment and the operating mechanisms to make that happen. So the thing, the leadership was like, well, yes, we believe in this. We do believe that when everything else becomes a commodity, or, you know, software is a commodity, what's your differentiator? It's going to be the consumer experience. And we also believe in doing right by our stakeholders. And that sort of drives the fact that they are very insight driven talking to consumers, researching, talking to their other stakeholders. And every consumer touch point needs to both, you know, take into consideration consumer behavior and needs and also consumer, you know, and also ensure that they meet the consumer's emotional needs. So, you know, have empathy every step of the way. So I think that was one. And then knowing that, okay, we've, we are committed to it, but we don't necessarily know what this will look like or what needs to happen. And then you sort of get the right people to lead it. And I think that's great because not a lot of organizations don't always do that. They declare it and then they don't know how to make it happen or they don't um, always enable the right people to make it happen. And I think that was, that was commendable. You know, and so they said, you know, um, this people who were leading the design leaders set up the right programs. They had the right success criteria, enabling not just the user experience professionals, but also everybody else within the organization to understand what UX is, how to work with UX. They also made sure that design thinking was embraced by the entire organization. So it was almost like design's a mindset. It's not a function. And that what that allowed you by opening your doors to let other people in allowed you to have more impact because they understood, they embraced and they practiced it. And they also realized that you bring a certain expertise that will help them make, uh, you know, create a better product or create better experiences for our consumers. So as you're involved in this, you know, over this time, the organization is changing and kind of progressing. What's, what's, how do you think you were different? How did you progress? You know, if you think about when you started versus when you left, what, what was your evolution in that experience? Yes, that's a good question. So I think, um, given my background and the fact that I had worked with Liz Sanders and at Fitch with her for a while, I always had practiced that approach, but in a very limited way and very sort of informal internal way. What this did was just allowed me to practice it in a more formal way, more purposeful way. You'd give and also not limited to just designing experiences. It you know, the design thinking provides you with tools not just to create better designs and experiences. It provides you with tools on how to collaborate with everybody, how to create better processes, 
how to even work through your interpersonal differences. So it just broadened your horizon and your perspective and, uh, you know, made you grow not just as, uh, not just in your profession, but also personally. And I think that's a very empowering experience and thought. I like how we've kind of hit upon a couple of times the the overlap or the kind of intertwining of our professional practice and our personal development. Right. I think design is a very introspective profession, right? I mean, I'm sure others are too. I'm not saying design is the only one, but given what we do, if we have to be successful, it does require a lot, you know, a fair amount of self-reflection. It, it certainly seems to be a, a characteristic we like to we like to celebrate in ourselves. And that may well be. Maybe we are just more vocal about it. Yeah. I mean, that's. I guess you know, I, I shouldn't be critical. That's what this podcast is, right? We're we're sort of looking looking at individuals and surfacing stories to kind of look at ourselves as a field. So obviously, I mean, and researchers especially like introspection because that's part of the toolkit. Yeah, and maybe that's what maybe that's why I kind of enjoy doing research because you are much more introspective by by nature of what you do. You know, you have to look make sense of things. You have all this information, and you have to try to make sense of it and. It just uh, comes naturally then. So can we talk about uh, your current role, your current organization? Maybe you can give a bit of an introduction to, to where you're at. Sometimes I start off the conversation with that and we just went all the way back and kind of all the way forward. But maybe we should talk about where you are, what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. And so right, I am currently, I work for a company called Kelly Blue Book. Actually, we are known, that's the brand, but we are known as Cox Automotive Media now. And uh, we, what Cox Automotive Media is, it's Kelly Blue Book and Auto Trader. So uh, we um, recently integrated and um, my, I manage, I'm the senior manager of UX research for Cox Automotive Media on Kelly Blue Book. I've been here for about, I think, a year and a half almost now. And uh, I this opportunity just happened to come along. Uh, you know, the director of UX at Kelly Blue Book asked me, reached out to me and was wondering if I was interested. And I... We started talking and then it, I wasn't really actively looking or anything, but it just sounded like such a great opportunity to, again, going back to what I enjoy doing, you know, the challenge of coming in and setting things up and uh, getting an organization to uh, develop and evolve into a more mature design-driven organization. So that was what attracted me to uh, Kelly Blue Book. The I love I I love the people here and I love the passion they have for insights and consumer research and um, in terms of again the maturity I think it's interesting because it's, things have come full cycle they are really I think were into it whereas when I started at into it. So it's sort of, I'm starting, it's almost like starting over. The good thing is I have so many lessons learned that I can use them, hopefully, to build on the successes from my past and really learn from the, you know, failures as well so that I don't repeat my mistakes. 
Can you talk about some successes that you have had in the in the year as as you've been you know setting things up and and you know trying to help with uh, you know the the evolution of the organization? Absolutely, I think um, so. Kelly Blue Book is in the automotive industry, and with that sort of comes that's the. Uh, the automotive industry is, how should I put it, is now on the design maturity continuum is not as sort of the capability is not as evolved as the other industries, if you will. And um, but the good, so that's one. But the good thing is there is at least within Kali Blue Book, there's, there's a thirst for learning and being design driven, being embracing consumer insights, because they also realize that that is going to provide them with the competitive edge. So a couple of things that I feel um, I've been able to accomplish here is the first is, uh, you know, as with most organizations that have a research function, evaluative research where you sort of come up with a design and you kind of, you know, validate your concepts that was being practiced here one of the things that uh, the organization was not practicing was generative or exploratory research and uh, one of the things that i've been able to do is get them to really embrace uh, exploratory generative research to one both get the teams all excited and uh, have more inputs towards brainstorming and designing experiences going broad and dis- designing, you know, different concepts and, you know, experimenting and testing their way into the best experience to launch. And uh, also we've started, you you know, it, this, I'm not saying we've been able to do it consistently and successfully, but we're trying to move, you know, we've started using the those insights as input towards defining product strategy. Are we there yet? No, but it's a start. So one of my goals when I came here was to kind of uh, move UX research from, and even design, but primarily, but, you know, I'm starting with UX research, move that from being a tactical player to being a strategic partner. And I think we are well on our way to that. So that's one. Can I can I ask can I ask a follow up before you get on to the second one? Absolutely. Uh, so um, you know, just imagine that someone's listening to this and they're thinking, um, you know, that's great. I want to do that, but how? You know, what can you advise? And then you talked about lessons learned and so on. So, how do you help the organization start to make use of of, of you know, exploratory research and think about it strategically. Right. I think uh, one of the things, you know, as part of my meet and greets, uh, the consistent theme I heard was, you know, we've been trying this and we've been trying that. And we've heard that there's a lot of opportunity based on industry data or market data we have, but we, we just haven't been able to figure out how to successfully monetize things. And I think that was that was my opportunity to say, okay, let's step back and see what questions you have and how you, you know, I can help you. And once we brainstormed a list of questions and concerns people had, it became very clear to everybody uh, that they really needed to look at things differently. And I'll give you an example. One of the things that I know is big in the media 
and especially in automotive media, is video. There is, I think, um, I don't know, I, I and I don't have the numbers, but I, I think uh, ad age or somebody has projected that video re- revenue from video is going to be in the millions in 2016 and we and we were you know the kbb revenue was very very small last year compared to, you know so we were trying to you were saying okay the numbers are telling us that there is a lot of opportunity but um how do we make it grow so that was so you were sort of looking at the business you're sort of talking to them from the business point of view, but also having them flip their thinking to understanding, okay, what is the, you know, what are your questions? And there is another part of this equation, which is the consumer. And also, in the case of the automotive industry, the automotive manufacturers, which, you know, they're known as OEMs and uh, dealers. So the, when we started brainstorming the questions, it became very clear that they didn't have the answer. So it was like, well, how are people going to use video in the shopping process? At what point do they want to watch videos? What kinds of videos do they want to watch? So very so there were some very high-level questions, but you probe deeper in your lives. We really didn't have specific information in terms of what point in the consumer journey do people want to watch videos? What point in the journey do they want to, uh, you know, uh, what 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 are the relevant video topics? So those just having that conversation allowed me to um, make the team realize that you can't build something and ask for consumer feedback or test it in the market and then, you know, grow your revenue. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. And and, I mean, I love that story because it it echoes a theme that I've heard from folks before, which is, you know, you're not, you didn't have a, you didn't start with a conversation about methods. You started with a conversation about goals, you, you know, outcomes, what are we trying to get to? Um, And then you're able to say, well, you know, given the questions that we have that we haven't answered, here's how to go about answering those and here's how it supports the business. So you were not you're not being dogmatic about I love this and this kind of research. You're you're able to bring it up in context of with the problems that the business has that you're there to help them solve. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's uh, and that's something that I've you know learned in my career <laughs> over the years. It's not about the methodology. It's and it's not. So and it's not about the data. It is about uh, the business needs, unanswered questions, and insights. The, you know, I think everybody trusts you. For the most part, you know, people trust your expertise in terms of the methodology. They, you know, they really want um, actionable information. So I always sort of, when I have conversations with people, I kind of try to use this, you know, phrase, it's a cliche, but what's in it for me? So what's in it for me, product manager, or what's in it for me, VP of, you know, VP of advertising. Yeah. I have, you have to speak in, um, on their terms. Yep. Did you have another example that you were going to describe of, of some things that have, that you've had impact on in, in the time there? Yes. And so this is sort of, this was what I like to call, um, you know, for want of any other way to describe it, almost serendipitous. So when I sort of, um, when I uh, started at Kelly Blue Book, one of the things that um, my goal was to make research more collaborative. Research was, the way it was being practiced was more of a service. 
this and it wasn't and you know it wasn't the researcher or research as a function wasn't embedded in the product development design pro- design and development process and as part of that i started um doing some um, collaborative design thinking exercises to get the team to, you know, not just hire, you know, not just as a researcher, do generative research, but get the team immersed in uh, talking to consumers, going out in the field to, you know, and then come back with ideas to um, generate concepts and brainstorm. And um, as part, so I was trying, I was doing that for uh, the different projects where it made sense. And at that, uh, around that time, our VP of product and finance attended a design thinking workshop and they, they were, they were sold. They felt, they believed in it and they felt that was a really good framework for us to use in the organization, not just for designing, but I think one of the, you know, one of the things they wanted the organization to do is to be more collaborative, do a better, you know, do a better job of problem framing and then just move quickly. Those were the, their goals and they felt that this was a good framework for the organization to use. And, uh, and we just happened to have this conversation. And at that point, um, they decided they wanted to formally introduce design thinking, which we call human-centered design here in the organization. And this was a cross, this is a cross functional initiative where um, we uh, are work, we work with a consultant that came in house and trained six 17 to start with 17 catalysts that actually help facilitate these sessions and those have ranged uh, you know from anything for for the sales team to generate ideas to monetize sales teams to generate ideas to create playbooks and pitch books to uh, operations teams for to increase efficiencies in their processes and of course you know for product design and development brainstorming ideas which is the natural fit anyways for design thinking so i think that's been very very exciting and very, it's been both very fulfilling and humbling because i don't you know like i said there was a thirst in this organization for uh, user research and insight-driven development, but I didn't expect the team and the organization to embrace design thinking the way they did. We, at one point, we were conducting, and we, this was in June, we launched this in June, and we were conducting at least one, you know, forget about the informal sessions, which happened if there was a team, embedded team, you know, catalyst on any team, we were conducting about one session, one formal session a day, and the catalyst couldn't keep up. Wow. So, yeah, so that, that's that been amazing. It's been both humbling and amazing. And, you know, you expect product to embrace it anyways, but sales embraced it. It. Operations embraced it, so I think it's it's just been so exciting and fulfilling and very very humbling. And you know, within Kelly Blue Book and Auto Trader, I guess I don't. You talked about them becoming integrated. Is the kinds of change that you're describing is that is that happening everywhere within the? So this has been Cox? so so we've started with Kelly Blue Book, but now my you know I now we're trying to kind of 
as we integrate with other trader, we're trying to build that those relationships and get them to also experience it. And then we'll we'll take it from there. But we are kind of, at least within Kelly Blue Book, we've been practicing it and we're working with other trader on embrace, you know, get, you know, just sort of getting them to practice it and then uh, build on it. And I also neglected to ask you this earlier. What are sort of the basic businesses that, that uh, Kelly Blue Book and Auto Trader are in? Yes. Like I mentioned, you know, they're, they're in the automotive industry and Kelly Blue Book, for those of you that have grown up with those literally blue books, would will remember that uh, your parents or grandparents used to look at those books to get the value of their current car when they were planning to sell it. So that's that's where Kelly Blue Book started, and uh, today, even though they make those, they, they do make a lot, you know they do print a few of those books. Uh, all, you know, our core competence is really the valuations, which is pricing of cars, and um, that's what we offer. And I, we are the market leaders in, in that. And one of our, you know, the thing that Kelly Blue Book as a brand stands for trust. People trust our values, and that's why they come to our site to get the value of their vehicles when they are ready to sell them and also the value of new vehicles when uh, they are looking for another vehicle. So that's Kelly Blue Book. Mm-hmm. And AutoTrader is in the business. They, like our you know, uh, CEO says, they really uh, invented online classifieds. Mm-hmm. They were the market leader and uh, the first company to bring classifieds online, automotive classifieds, mm-hmm. that is. So, is, you know, and that's what AutoTrader does. They are, uh, you know, they are a sort of matchmaker that bring that provides, cla- you know, classifieds or allows dealers to um, host their host classifieds and then provides consumers access to them and connects the two. And does does Auto Trader have a, a user experience or a research group that is? You know, I don't know, and I guess analogous to what what you're leading. Yes, they do. They do have a UX group, and they do have a research team. And the at Kelly Blue Book, what's the size of the research group? The size we are a team of four. And has that changed? That has not changed since. You mean since the acquisition, the integration? I mean, I'm just wondering. Uh, like a lot of research groups, so I say, oh, uh, the, I mean, research groups are growing in general. Is the trend that I mm-hmm. observe right? You know, sometimes where, you know, demand exceeds supply even for researchers. And I'm, I'm wondering. Right. And I think so. The only change to your point, yes, that's that's absolutely right. I, in fact, I have um, open headcount and I can't find people. Yeah. So the change is that I have to grow my team and I am not able to find people right now. What are candidates not succeeding in? The challenge we have for us here in, uh, you know, Kelly Blue Book is located in Orange County. And the challenge we have is that uh, there's San Diego to the south and there's LA to the north. And within, uh, in Orange County, there aren't many organizations that have such, uh, you know, a big UX group. We are about 30 two people here, UX, which includes researchers, designers, and copywriters or editors. And uh, it's very, so we're a big UX team as far as um, the, you know, compared to the other organizations in Irvine and Orange County. And 
they are, don't have this, you know, the way their roles are defined in the other organizations. They are not defined by designer, researcher, and copywriter, which, so I don't get people with strong research experience or skill sets. I think that's where kind of the challenge is, at least for us here. This is when you're pulling kind of from the local community of the yeah, people, people that are elsewhere. Right. And so most of the people are either in San Diego or LA and they don't want to move. Yeah. And if and while you're happy to have people relocate, not many want to move to Orange County. It's kind of a combination of factors that are challenging you there. Yeah, absolutely. And while it's easy to get entry-level people, I think when you're looking for people with some experience, that that, get, that gets very challenging. What do you, um, you know, what are you hoping to accomplish in the next X years? I don't know what the horizon for your vision is, but what are you looking towards? So a couple of things. I think my hope and wishes that we um, evolve on the design maturity continuum at Kelly Blue Book. And I think we're working towards that is we move from being, you know, an organization that uses design, you know, as a way to define and create experiences to really using design as an input towards strategy. I think that's my hope and wish. And um, we get to a point in the next year where our in the Cox Automotive Media Group, which is Autotrader and Kelly Blue Book, we've embraced design thinking. And we are at least starting to work towards leveraging UX, you know, design research, um, not just to execute on product, but also in some little way, uh, use our insights as input towards defining that strategy. I think that's, I would be really happy. I would consider that a success. Yeah, that's great. Um, and so I'm just thinking about our time here and, and looking, maybe starting to move towards our wrapping up. Um, and I, maybe I can uh, ask a question that goes all the way back to some of what we're, where we started. Um, so you, you talked about, you know, your trajectory and the different uh, educational and professional steps that you took and, and kind of you know, how that brought you where you are now. And we, we also talked about kind of the personal and the professional and how for people to do what we do, and maybe for many professions, as you said, they start to overlap. Um, you know, and a question that I often ask in these interviews um, is, you know, what, and it's different than I think than the, the, I mean, you've covered sort of the, the right things for this conversation, but sometimes there are other parts of our background or other parts of our personalities or our passions that, that find their way into the work and that, you know, are, are there things that, that really make you excellent? at what you do that are that are different than the sources we've talked about today so um, I don't know about that but one of the things that I kind of do um, make a very conscious effort to do is really ensure that everything and anything I do or my team does has relevance for the business I think sometimes we as UX professionals do ourselves a disservice by only thinking about solving for the user or the customer or the consumer, whatever you want to call them, you know, so there are different labels in every industry. And what happens is that one of two things happen there. Either people will not listen to you because it goes back to what's in it for me. Or uh, even if they do, they're not able to use it because the question at the back of their mind is, but how will it make me money? 
Right. Right. And and I'm not saying that, oh, you need to talk about monetization or your business model or revenue model every time or right away. That said, I think as UX professionals, for us to be impactful and have a seat at the table when strategy is being discussed, we need to be very, very mindful of that. And I think that's one of my challenges when I look for UX professionals, uh, you know, when you interview them, it's a unique sort of mindset. And uh, I, some, it's very rare. I don't always find it in UX professionals. And part of what you're describing to me sounds like empathy. And you've mentioned this a number of different points and different, different words, thinking about what their concerns are. It's not about, you know, the dollar signs in our eyeballs. It's about thinking about, as you said, what's in it for them is, is an empathy activity. And it sounds- I think, I know, I think that's a very good way to put it. I had not thought of it that way, but thank you. You can, yes. you can use that. I will absolutely, actually. It just, it's more going back to, yay, pat, pat on my back. <laughs> I am, I always tr- struggle with myself. You know, this is an internal struggle I have about maybe I am not, you know, I am not empathetic enough, right? I don't have empathy for people. So thank you. Cool. Uh, is there anything else we should have talked about today? You know, this was fun. I'm feeling very introspective, you know, going back to my Fitch day and talking about Liz and everything. So yeah, thank you for just making me relive my um, both, you know, the fun moments and the reflective ones. Thank you. Yeah, I think it makes for a really nice story when you kind of put it all together. And, and especially as we kind of bring it up to today and the challenges you're facing today. Do you have questions for me? I don't. And there's two things that I realized. These are the kinds of challenges I like getting into. And I mean, Intuit had challenges, but they're different. They're all, you know, they're already mature as a design organization and they have different challenges. Some people enjoy that, those. I do too. But this just getting in and sort of being part of something that is just formative is just what I enjoy. And so I kind of love it, right? Do I have frustrating days? Absolutely. But then when you see the rewards in terms of you know, what you've accomplished and how, you know, people feel you've made a difference in their outcomes. It's just, yeah, there's, it, it just feels good and it's very validating. Well, that's just such a lovely positive note to end on. So let's, let's leave it there. And thank you so much for uh, sharing so uh, deeply and personally. And uh, as you said, reflectively, I think it's, uh, it's been really wonderful. Well, thank you. Well, there you go. That's it for this episode of Dollars to Donuts. Mad props, as they say, to our sponsors, the Pinterest research team, who work with designers, engineers, and everyone in between to build the world's most inspiring catalog of ideas. Envision, the world's leading product design and prototyping platform. Sign up free at envisionapp.com. And Airbnb's experience research team, making authentic local experiences possible anywhere in the world. Our Definitely Not Serious theme music is by the Definitely Not Serious Bruce Todd. You can find links for this episode, read the transcript, check out other episodes, and subscribe at portugal.com slash podcast. If you don't already own a copy of Interviewing Users, it's the ideal gift for yourself because you totally deserve it. Get it from Amazon or from Rosenfeld Media. Get in touch with me at portugal.com and let's start exploring how we can work together. 